Hello, I'm Kate, and um, this is a series in December that Chloe and I have put together, which is based on Tim Keller's book, The Hidden Christmas. And uh, it's a great book that really makes you think about some of the aspects of Christmas that don't get that much attention and what's really behind the Christmas story. So we really hope that will be useful to you and maybe there's some things you can talk about with friends and family over Christmas. And uh, Christmas is a time we often associate with nice things, isn't it? Pretty lights, gifts, great food. Um, but as Chloe said to us last night, that the Christmas story is not a nice story. Uh, it's actually kind of weird story. You know, an angel comes to a virgin teenager and says, um, God's going to give you a baby that will be the savior of the world. I don't think we call that nice. I think we call that shocking. Um, and the Christmas story is a shocking story. And I'm going to call this message the shocking Christmas. And you might be surprised by that title, although you might say, Kate, if you could see my credit card bill at Christmas, now that is shocking. I do hope not. Um, but the fact that Christmas is shocking is one of the hidden things about it. And uh, we're going to look today at five things that are truly shocking about the Christmas story. Let's just pray. Lord, I thank you that I, as I've been preparing this, Lord, I feel like you've really shown me uh, some things that have shocked me in a good way. Lord, about your grace, about your love, about your generosity. And I just pray, Father, that um, the people watching this now might feel some of those same things. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's read from Matthew chapter 1. Uh, this is a slightly shortened version of this text. Uh, which Matt will put up on the screen. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. David, the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Joseph, the husband of Mary. And Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Thus there were 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile in Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. Now, Phil Moore says that filmmakers and novelists know that the opening scene is crucial uh, to either win or lose an audience's attention. And this genealogy at the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew is his opening scene, and it will definitely get the audience's attention. If you read the Bible, you know that um, every so often you come across lots of names and um, you think, do I read them, don't I read them? But one thing is for sure, they are always the names of men and their firstborn sons. That was the culture unquestionably until you get to this genealogy in the book of Matthew. And one of the excellent points that Chloe made last week is that when ex experts try to ascertain if historical documents are genuine, one of the criteria they look for is, does it contain anything outrageous or embarrassing? Because um, if you're trying to fabricate an account of history, you're not going to put those things in. And we know this from our own CVs, don't we? We always try to um, present everything in the best possible light, don't we? Like that year you spent bumming around Europe, that becomes international market research or something like that, doesn't it? We know how to make our own timelines look good. Um, but that's not what you see in Jesus' family tree. And this family tree recalls some of the most immoral incidents in the Bible. Fillmore says this, 
Matthew seems to go out of his way to demonstrate that Jesus' family tree is not pretty. He is descended from Judah and his daughter-in-law Tamar, who dressed up as a prostitute to trick her backslidden father into having sex with her. He is the descendant of Rahab, the prostitute of Jericho, who was saved when her city was destroyed because she hid two spies on, her, on the roof of her brothel and lied to protect their lives. He's descended from Ruth, the widowed migrant worker from the Gentile nation of Moab, whose people were so corrupt that they were excluded from the presence of God. He is the descendant of Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon, who committed adultery with David and became his queen even while her murdered husband's body was still fresh. Matthew emphasizes this sin by referring to her as Uriah's wife and then adds to his list Rehoboam, Jehoram, Ahaz and Manasseh, the wickedest kings of Judah. Finally, he tells us that Jesus, was the son of the Virgin Mary, conceived so miraculously that even her fiancé thought she was guilty of illicit sex before marriage. So this genealogy contains women, contains women who were not Jews, and men and women who were involved in some of the messiest bits of the Bible. The shock factor would have been off the charts. I mean, this really would have been deeply offensive to a lot of people. Do you remember Jamie and Carmen in their message a few weeks ago about airing dirty laundry in public? This is dirty laundry. So what does it tell us? It tells us the kingdom of God is shocking. Religion is about us trying to get up to God. And the higher you go, the fewer people there are. But the kingdom of God is about God's grace to people who don't deserve it. And that it's available to anyone who will accept all that he offers. You know, the Bible says that God calls the things that are not. How amazing is that? You know, in Jewish culture, the women were not in genealogies, but here they are. In that culture, it was all about the firstborn son, not the other children. Tim Keller says this, in ancient times, when the oldest son always got all the wealth and the second or younger son had no social status, how does God work? Through Abel, not Cain. Through Isaac, not Ishmael. Through Jacob, not Esau. Through Ephraim, not Manasseh. Through David, not his older brothers. At a time when women were valued for their beauty and fertility, God chooses old Sarah, not young Hagar. He chooses Leah, not Rachel, unattractive Leah, whom jo Jacob doesn't love. He chooses Rebecca, who can't have children, Hannah, who can't have children, Elizabeth, John the Baptist's mother, who can't have children, Samson's mother, who can't have children. Why? Over and over again, God says, I will choose Nazareth, not Jerusalem. I will choose the girl nobody wants. I will choose the boy everyone has forgotten. Why is it just that God loves underdogs? No, he's telling us something about salvation itself. Every other religion and moral philosophy tells you to summon up all of your strength and live as you are. Therefore, they appeal to the strong, to the people who can pull it together. Only Jesus says, I've come for the weak. I have come for those who admit they are weak. I will save them not by what they do, but through what I do.
the kingdom of God is shocking because it's countercultural, it's inclusive, it's not for the elite. Everybody who wants to be in can be in. How great is that? That's the first th shocking thing about Christmas. And the second is this, Herod is shocking. Now, uh, Philip Yancey in this amazing book, The Jesus I Never Knew, he tells us a bit of what like Herod was like as a man. He says, Herod killed two brothers-in-law, his own wife, Mariamne, and two of his sons. Five days before his death, he ordered the arrest of many citizens and decreed that they be executed on the day of his death in order to guarantee a proper atmosphere of mourning in the country. Scarcely a day passed, in fact, without an execution under Herod's regime. In Herod's mind, the command to slaughter Bethlehem's infants was probably an act of utmost rationality to preserve the stability of his kingdom against the rumoured invasion of another. Now, you're never going to see a Christmas card depicting the massacre of the innocents. And that's a good thing. But this is still a shocking part of the Christmas story. You know, the wise men came to Herod and they said, where's the one who's been born king of the Jews so that we can go and worship him? And, uh, and Herod says to them, go and search carefully for the child and then come and report back to me so that I can go and worship him too. And obviously that wasn't his intent. And when he realized that the Magi had defied him and gone home by another route, he was incensed and he ordered the murder of every young boy under the age of two. Herod shows us what uh, the lengths that someone will go to to remain king. And Tim Keller says this, now when you come to a palace and ask where is the king, it's going to alarm the person who's actually sitting on the throne. If you want to be king and someone else comes along saying that he is the king, then one of you has to give in. Only one person can sit on an absolute throne. And this part of the Christmas story, it helps us to ask ourselves, what lengths will we go to, to be the king or queen of our lives, to be in control? Are there any parts of our lives that we're holding back, not able or willing to trust God with? In the Christmas story, Jesus is the baby in the manger, meek and mild, but now he's the king of kings. He's reigning in power. What is it that we feel that we can't trust him with or don't want to hand over? Will he be king of your life or will you? Thirdly, let's talk about some characters in the story who were shocked. The angels. Now, in the Christmas story, we see angels in a few places. Obviously, um, an angel appears to Mary and tells her that she's going to have a baby who is God. Um, that actually, I could conclude that is its own shocking point about Christmas. But we're going to talk a bit more about Mary next week. Um, another angel appears to Joseph in a dream to reassure him. And before all that happens, an angel appears to Zechariah and tells him that his wife, Elizabeth, who is old in years, is going to have a baby. And he stupidly says, um, well, how can I be sure this is going to happen? And the angel comes back with this classic reply, I am Gabriel. In other words, I've come from the presence of God. And if I tell you something's going to happen, it's going to happen. And then we also see the angels um, in the sky, you know, celebrating the, the birth of Jesus, announcing him to a group of shepherds in the fields. But let's not forget 
The angels have seen Jesus before creation in all his glory. Remember in John 17, when Jesus is in the garden of Gethsemane and he's praying and he says, um, bring me into the glory, Father, that I shared with you before the creation of the world. In 1 Peter 1.12, we read now, this good news has been announced to you by those who preached in the power of the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. It is all so wonderful that even the angels are eagerly watching these things happen. They're fascinated. They're shocked. I mean, can you imagine? Have you ever thought about how shocking it would have been for the angels who worship the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? They see them in all their glory. And then to see the Son of God empty himself of his glory and become a helpless baby in the manger, that he'd become like one of us so that we could become like one of him. Not like one of him, like him. <laughs> now, Philip Yancey makes a really interesting statement. See what you think about this. In Revelation 12, pulls back the curtain to give us a glimpse of Christmas as it must have looked from the angel's viewpoint. The account differs radically from the birth stories in the gospel. Revelation does not mention shepherds and an infanticidal king. Rather, it pictures a dragon leading a ferocious struggle in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun and wearing a crown of 12 stars cries out in pain as she is about to give birth. Suddenly, the enormous red dragon enters the picture, his tail sweeping a third of the stars out of the sky and flinging them to earth. He crouches hungrily before the woman, anxious to devour her child the moment it is born. At the last second, the infant is snatched away to safety. The woman flees into the desert, and all-out cosmic war begins. He continues, As a Christian, I believe we live in parallel worlds. One world consists of hills and lakes and barns and shepherds watching their, their, their flocks by night. The other consists of angels and sinister forces and somewhere out there places called heaven and hell. One night in the cold, in the dark, among the wrinkled hills of Bethlehem, those two worlds came together at a dramatic point of intersection. God, who knows no before or after, entered time and space. God, who knows no boundaries, took on the shocking confines of a baby's skin, the ominous restraints of mortality. This brings us to really the ultimate shocking thing about Christmas, God came to us. In a song I wrote with Sam Young, we included the line, whoever, whoever heard of a humble God? God came to us as a baby, as a humble king. Now, apparently, when Queen Elizabeth II goes on an overseas trip, and I'm not dissing the Queen, I have the utmost respect for her, but a typical trip will include taking 2,000 kilos of luggage, including two outfits for every occasion, a morning outfit in case somebody dies, 40 pints of plasma, uh, kid leather toilet seat covers, her own hairdresser, two valets, and a host of other attendants. In contrast, and this is Yancey again, God's visit to earth took place in an animal shelter with no attendants present 
and nowhere to lay the newborn king, but a feed trough. Indeed, the event that divided history and even our calendars into two parts may have had more animal than human witnesses. A mule could have stepped on him. Surely the most shocking part of Christmas is that God has come to us, that how much he loves us. Because we needed a saviour and the only way that we could find him was not through our own efforts, but by him coming to us and saying, here I am. But there's one more thing that's equally shocking. And that is not only that God was prepared to come, but how much he was prepared to give us, all that he was pleased to give us. And recently I've been trying to write a song based on Ephesians 1, which is is full of beautiful poetry, you know, that's very dear to us. But when you come to try and explain what does it mean to be in Christ, you know, it requires a lot of thought. And this is not me trying to be the great theologian. You know, the Bible says always be prepared to give an account for what you believe. And we should all be prepared to do that. Like if someone asks you over Christmas, it says here that we're seated in heavenly places with Christ. What on earth does that mean? You know, we need to be prepared to give an answer. And I've been reading um, Martin Lloyd-Jones and I've uncovered some shocking things that are like the consequences of Christmas, the consequences of Jesus coming to us and us believing in him. How about this? Everything that is true of Christ is true of us. That's what Martin Lloyd-Jones says, and he's an expert. Does that shock you? It, It shocked me. He's talking about what it means to be in Christ. You know, think about it. We are righteous because he is righteous. And when you believe in Jesus, God declares us righteous. We're holy because he is holy. We have eternal life as he does, as he always has done, because whoever so believes in Jesus will not perish but have eternal life. We are raised to spiritual life. We were dead in our sins, but now we're alive in God and we are raised to spiritual life by the same power that raised Jesus from the grave. All these things are true of Christ and they are also true of us because we are in him. We've been given authority in Christ because we are in him. We are seated in heavenly places with him. You notice it's in the present tense. It's not one day you will be seated or when you get to heaven, you will be seated. But it says that you are seated there with him now. Now, I know that I'm standing in the northern beaches of Sydney right now. So how do I understand this? Hebrews 10, 12 to 14 says, Our high priest offered himself to God as a single sacrifice for sins, good for all time. Then he sat down in the place of honour at God's right hand. There he waits until his enemies are humbled and made a footstool under his feet. For by that one offering, he forever made perfect those who were being made holy. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, When a man or woman has finished their task, they sit down. And Christ has sat down. What else does it mean? No longer labour, but rest. But still more important, victory. And you and I are in Christ and we are seated with him in the heavenly places. And here it is. He says, the work of your redemption is already complete. You need nothing further. 
it is all done. Whom he has called, he has also justified, and whom he justified, he has also glorified. If you are in Christ, you are eternally safe, complete. My fellow Christians, you have been chosen before the world was formed. You've been called out of darkness, you've been justified and made right with God because of Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection. And you have been glorified to be seated there with Christ in heavenly places. While you may sit in this earthly body today, in the heart and mind and plan and purpose of God who is outside of time, your place is there already. That is as shocking as it would have been for the first people who heard the Gospel of Matthew and heard that people who are not Jewish people, not God's chosen people, were included in the family tree of the Messiah. Women are included. Can you imagine the women in the patriarchal society of AD 60 hearing about this and saying to each other, have you heard? We're in. And this is the gospel. This is the message of Christmas. If you believe in Jesus, if you believe that God himself came to this world to die for your sins, to save the human race that could never get to God themselves, you're in. You're into the kingdom of God. You're into eternal life. You're into every spiritual blessing available because you are in Christ. Finally, Tim Keller says this, I don't care who you are. I don't care what you've done. I don't care if you've been on the paid staff of hell. I don't care what your background is. I don't care what deep, dark secrets are in your past. I don't care how badly you've messed up. If you repent and come to God through Jesus, not only will God accept you and work in your life, but he delights to work through people like you. Christmas is shocking. The grace of God is shocking because God is willing to give us more than we can ever get our heads around. And it's all as a gift. It's not earned or deserved, but given because he loves us. And if we just believe in him, it is all ours. If you've never heard this before, and it sounds good, let me pray for you and pray this prayer with me. Lord Jesus, thank you for coming from glory to be born as a baby, to become one of us so that we could know you. Thank you for dying on the cross for our sins and for conquering sin and death when you rose from the grave. Thank you for choosing us before the formation of the world to be included in your great plans, to be your people, even to become like you. I believe you love me and know me and want me to love and know you. I believe in you and accept you as my saviour in Jesus' name. If you prayed that prayer for the first time, we would love to hear from you. Thanks so much for listening. Merry Christmas.